Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 76th episode of the Truth Island podcast. The words socialism and capitalism have been at great odds with one another in recent history. While some claim that socialism has its roots dating back to the ancient era, the modern sense of the idea started gaining traction around the time of the French Revolution. With even eminent American figures such as Thomas Paine proposing that property be taxed to help the poor, and pioneers such as Robert Owen, who built communes known as Onanite communities around the U.S., such as in New Harmony, Indiana. However, despite having the best intentions, many of Robert Owen's communities fell into several episodes of utter chaos due to a shortage of skilled laborers and labor disputes between those who did work versus those who had the freedom not to work. Robert Owens writes in one of his diaries in 1856, it appeared that it was nature's own inherent law of diversity that had conquered us or our united interests were directly at war with the individualities of persons and circumstances and the instinct of self-preservation. Despite several more attempts to make his socialist communes work and spending over $200,000 of his own money, New Harmony was eventually shut down and converted into private property. The lessons taken from socialism in its purest incarnation is that ultimately human self-preservation and self-interest typically triumph when a proper incentive infrastructure is not established to encourage labor and industriousness. During the same exact time, however, another system by the name of capitalism was also beginning to grow, replacing the already worn out system of mercantilism that had been built around expansive trade routes dominated by the British East India Company. In his book, Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith describes the idea of the invisible hand, the idea that market forces can bring about wealthier and richer nations. Smith writes that the individual, by pursuing his own interest, frequently promotes that of society more effectually. In other words, Smith's philosophy directly contradicts with that of Owens in the sense that man is of the greatest benefit when he works to uplift himself because as a byproduct of his efforts, he can't help but benefit society. For example, a very selfish shoemaker can't help but benefit society even though he is selfish because in order to sell shoes, he must produce a quality product, which in turn benefits society. However, moving into the 20th century, the rise of child labor, stagnant wages, a Great Depression, two world wars, and constant booms and bust cycles have led to prolonged economic recessions, which have led many to question the stability of capitalism. With many states practicing something more along the lines of a mixed economy, which allows for the free market to determine prices and businesses to operate freely, but allows countries to develop social programs and pass regulations when the public welfare might be at risk. The question thus becomes not whether a nation should become capitalist or socialist, but rather what exactly is the correct balance? Joining me to solve all of the world's economic issues, I am once again joined by Joe. Joe, let me ask you this. What would you rather, work in a sweatshop or live in New Harmony, Indiana? You know, that's a great question. And, you know, it's very easy to say, well, 
New Harmony actually doesn't seem too bad at this time of year. But <laughs> when, when you put it in the idea that it's a sweatshop, but that's what it was, you know, back in the day. And I think that that was what spurred in, you know, the idea of socialism. And that's actually a lot of the issues that exist within capitalism. You have this inequality that exists and you have this income disparity not necessarily built into the system, but it is a product of the system. Now, this is something that's really revolutionary because what people don't understand is that in New Harmony, which I would say is one of the purest forms of socialism, there was actually vast inequality. And then people are like, but Aaron, like, like all of the workers owned a part of the mill or they owned part of the production. Like how, how could there be inequality in socialism? And here's how it worked, Joe. There were a lot of labor disputes where there was a group of people that was highly industrious that lived in New Harmony and they did a lot of work. And then there were others that kind of refused to do work. They just were like, nope, nope, I don't want to work at all. But the, the share of the pie was always equal. Like everyone was entitled to certain things, like turn, certain level of housing, certain level of amenities, a certain level of food every single day. So it became a question of like, how can we force people who don't want to work to work? And um, I remember reading about this years ago that there is this, this episode with this one woman who doesn't want to milk the cows. So there's this woman in New Harmony and she refuses to milk the cows. She's like, it's not fair. I don't want to do this work. And finally, they, they grab her by the wrist and they take her to the farmhouse and they force her to milk the cows. And she's crying in tears while milking the cows. Like she's like, she's like in tears being like, how could you make me work? How could you make me do anything? And this is one of the examples of socialism in, in its purest incarnation. And what ends up happening is when, when all of the rewards are just, or are, are like completely evenly distributed, it's really hard to get people to do just about anything. And, and for those listening, we will attack capitalism in a moment, but we're just, we're going after pure socialism first. Yes, absolutely. And, and so, you know, and, and maybe we'll just skip right to that. The counter argument to that in a certain case would be the individual that's forced to go work because the system is forcing them where it's either live or die. And I can give you an example of that where if there is no common good or you know common way of living that you start to see people as a means to an end and, and child labor and things like that start to emanate from from the system and it, what it does is that you have somebody that maybe can't milk the cow and then what do you do with that person mm, you right. know and i think that that's the question is where capitalism then fails is that if somebody can't milk the cow and then you have somebody that just doesn't want to milk the cow, that is where it kind of filters out. You know, you see the problem in both systems and I, and I, and you start to see this issue where laborers start to get exploited very quickly. And I think that, you know, it's interesting to see that no system is perfect. So the idea of this is where we'll, and we'll get to this is the idea of a mixed system. It seems to be ideal. Yeah. So th this, what you actually made was a, a very nice distinction here, Joe, and it's a distinction that's often not made when talking about economics. And that is 
people who don't want to work versus people who can't work. And and that you those, these people usually just get clumped into the same bucket, unfortunately. And I think this is a critical distinction that we need to make. A person that is blind, a person that is missing legs, is missing hands, is mentally handicapped. And, and when I say mentally handicapped, like certified by a psychologist that this, this person is, is not capable of performing a task or so forth, right? Not, not just like, I'm feeling sad today. Like, like, like there has to be some kind of really rigorous diagnostic criteria for, for that to stick. And what we do is, is we don't really look at the details. And I think that we need to separate the girl who doesn't want to milk the cows because the key word here is with a capital W, doesn't want to, right? Doesn't want to do this act from the person who can't. And I would argue with you that the, the person that is disabled or handicapped in such way, we as a society have some, we have a responsibility to take care of them. Maybe not put them up in a mansion and give them a Lamborghini, but we do have a responsibility to make sure that they're, I think we're rich enough as, as a society to take care of these people and, and, and make sure that they are, they are safe. But at the same time, we also have a right to talk to people who don't want to work and have honest conversations with them as well. Yeah, and unfortunately, the conversation tends to be either you do it or you don't. And what happens is either in either system, you know, um, because if somebody really just doesn't want to, then, you know, then what are you going to do? You're going to have to, you know, you're going to arrest them. What's the repercussion from that? And the capitalist system, if you come to somebody and talk to them and they don't necessarily want to do it, you know, yes, you fire them and they could have a, you know, disability of some sort where they're unable to, then how does that person then provide for themselves? And, you know, this is where it becomes a heartless system either way, you know, and this is, this is the problem with either system in its purest form. In its purest form, they seem to discard those who are most vulnerable yes. or, you know, make a distinction who is vulnerable and who isn't. And that's hard to do. I mean, you know, you were talking about setting up a criteria. That's a very difficult criteria to come up with sometimes. I mean, the military makes that uh, distinction. Uh, let me, who, let me ask you can. this. Let me ask you this question. Let's say, Joe, you were Robert Owens right now and you were in charge of the new Harmony commune and you did have this, this girl who just refused to milk cows. What do you think is an acceptable punishment? Do you think it's acceptable to say you're not getting lunch and dinner? Is it acceptable to starve them out? Is it acceptable to have a group of villagers take this woman and force her to milk the cow? So wh what would you do in that particular situation? And, and let's just say for argument's sake, she has a clean bill of health. What, what would you do in that situation? Well, I mean, we've kind of seen how people react in those situations when they're willing, not unwilling to conform to the state, then the state has to force them to conform. And in a certain cases, it has to be an example, mm -hmm. right? I mean, because the reality is, is that if one person does this, well, maybe they just don't want to eat lunch, you know? So what are you going to do? Take away somebody's lunch, then you're going to take away their dinner, then what are you going to eat? It, it, then people have this way of figuring out what they're not going to do. And that's where capitalism does have an advantage because it incentivizes the opposite. It incentivizes innovation and it incentivizes the uh, idea to work. 
mm-hmm. and to, to come up with your own, you know, uh, your own uh, approach to doing things within their system. However, we all know that it just doesn't work like I just, you know, articulated. Yeah. So I, I don't, you know, I don't know what I do in that service, you know, because it's a slippery slope. You start telling somebody, you start withholding things. I don't know what to do. Well, I mean, if I, I'll put myself in this situation, right? Do I think it's right to starve someone out? Probably not. I don't think I'm that cold hearted, especially, especially given the fact that we live in a wealthy enough country where we're at a a point of development where we definitely have enough food to go around. So I'm not, I'm not going to starve this woman out, but she's losing privileges, man. Like, let, let me just tell you, if I was Robert Owens, everyone else gets to have like the movie night. Everyone else gets to do this fun thing. Everyone else gets to live in bigger quarters. And like, I am taking away privileges and I'm rewarding those who work hard because in my, in my mind, if I was running this commune, I wanted to function as close to a meritocracy as humanly possible, where the people who are putting their best foot forward and are working the hardest are reaping the rewards. Now, is there a baseline? Am I am I taking like I believe everyone should be entitled to three meals a day, but you know maybe the people who are working really harder get the the flame mignon and get the the prime rib. You know I, I you know like there has to be some kind of incentive structure where good people and hardworking people do get a little bit, a bit, a bit better slice out of life than those who are refusing to work. I think that's a fair thing to say. I think you just struck on the idea of the balance that is needed right there with that statement is that how do you strike that balance? The thing with both capitalism and socialism as a debate that I find to be very interesting is they agree on one thing. They agree on the idea of freedom. Now, people that are socialists say you're not free in a capitalist society, that you're you know, subjected to the system and that you're basically you're a slave within the system because they're employee-employee-employer-employee relationship. But what you just described, uh, Mr. Owen's world, if I were in that position, then is a similar relationship because you have to conform to what I'm saying. So your personal freedom is being infringed upon to a certain degree. And I think this highlights where both systems fail, Mm. you know, that they're failing to provide you the freedom that you truly desire, right? One wants economic freedom and, or they both want economic freedom, but the ability to make your own decisions in either system seems to be limited. Therefore, you're kind of looking for the balance that provides a personal freedom to individuals, enough personal freedom to individuals, but also serves the common good in a, in a way. And that's where we are today, I think. I, I think that we have to, like, I, I, I think that we have to come to the realization that at this current juncture in 2020, a mixed economy approach is really going to be our best options. Maybe eventually we'll get to some kind of Star Trek level of understanding and, and right. cooperation. We're not there. We're not, we're not there yet, folks. Like I wish we were, I wish I could call myself Captain Picard or whatever, you know, like I wish. Make it I, so. Make it <laughs> so. <laughs> I, I, I wish, I wish we had like the rules of the enterprise here. And there was a machine that just magically produced food and whatnot. We're not there yet unfortunately. And I think that 
when we're looking at these two systems, there's there's virtues and there's there's cons to, to, to both of them. And I think I think the idea behind that is to provide agency. Like we want our individuals not to be complacent. We want them to have agency. We want them to also be taken care of. And um, I was speaking to this with uh, my Roman Empire expert, and it's this idea of like, do we value freedom more or protection more? And th this is like the great philosophical debate that we have. And I think like capitalism would be like freedom, like they're, 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 they're giving like the thumbs up with freedom, where socialism is like, we got your back, we're going to protect you more. And these are, these are urges within us. And I think individuals respond differently. Some people have more of a freedom inclination and some people have more of a protective inclination. And I think that has a lot to do with the, with the individual psyche of whether you choose capitalism or socialism, if you're looking at it as a binary system. Yeah, I mean, and I, and I would argue that it's just the target that one is aiming. Uh, in other words, one's aiming at liberty versus versus equality and what the the capitalists will argue is that if you aim at liberty we're all a little bit more equal we're all better off and what the socialists will argue is that no if you aim at equality that we are all better off and 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 so i but here's a the point is that i look at freedom within that system they both have this desire for some degree of personal freedom and you know whether it be from the tyranny of a robber baron or the tyranny of joseph stalin yes you know so that's so but you know you're still looking for that personal freedom is that is what people are looking for you know that in the sense that if i have enough to eat then I, you know i'll read books i'll do other things but i need the basics mm -hmm. If I don't, then what happens out of that? And that's the, where capitalism fails, is it fails to provide for the, its most basic needs for individuals and prevents them from having that freedom of reading books and things like that. So there's an exploitation of labor. Yes, yes. And I like the word that you use that I think both both systems in their purest form present tyranny. But both of them are actually forms of tyranny because capitalism you have the tyranny of of the robber baron and in when when socialism turns into communism let's say you tend to have an oppressive state apparatus like a joseph stalin or chairman mao that also reigns like you have state tyranny so you have a choice you can have robber baron tyranny or you could have state tyranny and for those on the for those on the left who are listening to this right now Robert Owens was a really nice guy. Like he was an idealist. He was not a Joseph Stalin. He was actually a pure hearted guy. I, you know, like he had really nice ideals, but his communes actually fell into states of anarchy. And right. basically the, the guy with the strongest muscles or the guy who could coalition build around like how that commune should be run basically called the shots. It was like a, a system of like warlords would basically, you know, be like, Hey, 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 I got everyone on my side and, and they kind of, tyrannized those colonies and made them fail. So there was a lot of, a lot of violence on, on those communes that, that actually made them fail. So I think the key word here is that each of these systems is leading to a different set of actors to reign 
tyranny upon you, whether it's the robber baron tyrann tyranny or state centralized government tyranny. Right. And I and I think that this is where actually socialists have, you know, done a lot of homework over the past 70, 80 years. And because they're they are focused more on distributed power within mm. their social systems and and their economic systems, which didn't exist in any of the countries that you just named. Uh, and so what happens is that where you yeah, you have a, a choice here. How do you then how do you reinvent socialism? You know, that's what people are trying to do these days. Now, I personally think that there are still fundamental flaws built in to the to the socialist system that are very, very difficult to answer. Yes. So specifically that being how prices are set and and you know goods and services but that doesn't mean that i don't believe in strong government re regulation and you know a very equitable tax on people that's the, i look at it as something where I, I i see a tax is not a bad thing if it's done if it's distributed fairly and that, that's something else that you know pure capitalists will argue against because they don't want any government involved. Yes. And it's like, no, you need government involvement, but it has to be, I hate to say it, a just government, you know, but <laughs> you know, that, that sounds, that so sounds so idealistic and that's not me, but, you know, I think that that's, But this, but this is, so this is actually an unwritten form of checks and balances. And then here's how I see it playing out. I think that what ends up happening is in communism, you don't have businesses checking the power of the government, right? And in laissez-faire capitalism, you don't have the government checking the power of businesses. But I think a mixed economy is kind of like a example of checks and balances. When businesses become robber barons and form monopolies and go absolutely crazy, the check on that power is the government, right? They are the absolute check on that power. And then if, if power starts centralizing in the state, well, then the free press and the businesses are now checking the power of the state and making sure that the state is not becoming a corrupt, you know, a, a corrupt force in, in in the world. So I actually think that the 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 founders of the Constitution never thought of this, but I think a mixed economy actually follows the constitutional model of checks and balances. Yeah, it does. It's something else where I, you start to see where the checks and balances get out of balance in the sense that even if you have the robber barons, you go back to the day. The railroads would have never existed if it weren't for the government and land grants, right? So, but these were private enterprises that made a lot of money off of these. Yeah. So then they turn around and they don't want to be regulated. And it's kind of like, well, look, that's a form of paying your dues for being, and it's kind of, you have the robber barons that are trying to influence elections and the government itself in this process. Mm -hmm. And so again, it, the checks and balances seem to be, you know, I don't know where the check is in that case, because then you have a group of individuals and we have an oligarchy that have an enormous amount of power that are exploiting people, but they can also exploit the government too. That, that is true. And I, I think that, you know, I'm totally for, you know, 
uh, I think the two cases are the Glass-Siegel Act and Citizens right. United. Like, right. we need to definitely take money out of politics. This, this, is, this is actually ruining, I think money in politics is actually ruining the perfect checks and balance system that I just described like less than three minutes ago. Because you are right, the oligarchs and these very wealthy companies are basically – like I guess in venture capitalism, they're making a hostile takeover of the government. <laughs> no, no, that's a great point. And yeah, I mean, yeah, go ahead. No, the Glass-Steagall Act is a perfect example of that. You know, you remove that, and you basically now have investment banks that are now re or retail banks becoming investment banks, and in that process, that what happens is that you uh, have this catastrophic event and then people think oh the system you know the system has failed well yeah the system did fail but it was regulated properly and you had a proper balance that you, in the in the bank and the financial services industry but you know this one removal of this law has us questioning the whole capitalist model part of the reason that china is being looked at as as a model now is because of 2008 mm, mm. you know that this this catastrophic event where you had basically you know the whole entire economy put at risk because of series of banks i, I can't i actually can't answer this question um i was talking uh with with um a friend of mine and th th like i feel that in china the communist party right I don't know if they're as beholden to like private money as as our system. I, I can't actually answer this question if like because I think in China. So I, I think the way China works is like this. Their state apparatus is first in line and then their businesses are like second in line. So both are equally powerful, right? Like being a rich Chinese businessman is totally cool there. But at the end of the day, if the government official says no, then the answer is no. Like I think that's how China runs where it's like you can you can operate your business in here. You know, we can have Google here. But when the Chinese censor or the Chinese guy says you're going too far or we're not we're, you're, you're not serving our interests right now basically the private business has to kind of take the knee and then just bend down and, 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 and accommodate. Whereas I think America is the opposite where it's like when the private interest and the big corporations tell the politician, no, 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 we don't really like the way that you're going. Then the politician has to take the knee and sort of bend down. So I think that the, 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 the systems are similar, but in China, it's the, it's the government that has the upper hand and in America, it's the businesses that have the upper hand. And I think the really important part here is the idea of power, mm -hmm. right? And how do you distribute it equally? You know, the, how do you have that right balance of checks and balance or check, you know, those checks and balances in place that where there isn't too many, too much power centralized in one person hand or the other, whether it be, you know, the state or a robber baron. And, yes. you know, and I think that's where we are with a mixed economy. How do you get to that point? How do you strike a balance between? And there are other metrics you have to look at, you know, rates of innovation and things along those lines. How do you really measure success and what do you really want out of your model? Because if you're going to have a mixed model, you have to clearly define your objectives. Mm -hmm. And that's an, that's another problem with the way the system is set up 
we don't necessarily agree on our objectives all the time. Yes. And that's, and that's where the real debate comes in uh, and ideologies start to enter into the equation. Okay. I, I can only speak about the U.S. For, for now, at least. I think that making it possible to be involved in politics without so much lobbying support and without so much capital is going to make the government stronger. Okay, so I think that if we, if we kind of could lessen the reliance, and I, I think I've heard this idea of when you run as a Democrat or a Republican, there's a little money that you get from the party. Like they'll give you a, a little right. chump change, but that's usually not enough, right? They give you a little something like a, a million or two million or, or some little amount of money. So I think maybe increasing the public access where more campaigns can be funded through other means outside of like private private companies. Because right now, if you're not relying on big lobbyists or you're not independently wealthy like a Bloomberg or something, it's really hard to get involved in politics. You're almost behold, you almost have to go out with your hands open to the big companies and be like, hey guys, hey Goldman Sachs, here's what I'm gonna do for you. Could you kind of support my campaign? Thank you very much. I think we have to get to some state, some level where our politicians can run for office and not need all that much money to do so. And that's going to take a lot of regulation, but I think we're going to be better off because then our, our politicians can once again have some degree of integrity and they don't have to rely on like, oh my God, well, I have to run for office again in another two years or four years and I have to raise all this money. If they don't have that stressor weighing out on them, it might it might give them a little bit more muscles. Right. And I think it gets it closer to having individuals that will make decisions that are based on the whole, right? Yeah, uh, where where we can have a, you know, and I, and I think that the the most efficient way to get there would probably change the way we vote. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be my and that, but that's a kind of a separate conversation in the sense that, you know, that how do you then get the elect, you know, get the government that you want that facilitate, you know, facilitates a system that b- best suits everybody's needs. Yeah. So that's the relationship that would I do think that again if you have a ranked choice voting type model that you know candidates will be able to run in a much more a much more honest way mm-hmm. because they're actually thinking they have to come up with ideas that resonate with everybody but so. that also answer problems as opposed to answering the party's agenda yes yes and and, and um I will. We. I will nail you down one of these days. We're going to do that podcast about political parties and in the yes, year. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm going to nail you down. We're going to get yes, that done. We're going to get that done. <laughs> uh, so going back to socialism and and, and capitalism as, as systems on a whole, right? Mm-hmm. Let's let let's think of some of the issues that kind of you know arise. And and one of these I, I talked about on a previous podcast is this idea of universal health care, and. Universal healthcare is is socialist, right? Absolutely. I think with all of these socialist things, though, we have to ask: is it is it good or is it bad? And with the case of healthcare, I think it's a net positive because if you are sick, right? If you are sick and cannot work, but a surgery can allow you to once again work, well, then why the heck not? Because a person that's sick and can't work isn't being lazy. They're not like the girl that doesn't want to milk the cows. It's like, hey, I need this surgery in order to perform my job. So I think that with with that, that's that's a no-brainer. That's like 
socialism that's just an, an instant check mark because it's not to do with individuals not wanting to work. It's not about incentive. It's not about it. Like people, people think that like certain forms of socialism will uh, de-incentify, you know, like, like, you know, take away the incentive from working. But I think healthcare actually incentivizes people to work because now they're healthy and now, now they can go back to work. Whereas if they're sick, the incentive is just to kind of lay in bed all day. Right. And I think that that's a really important point that you just made. It's like, what is a, you know, what do we need in order to do our jobs, mm-hmm. whatever that job may be. And so, because ultimately what the, the government benefits off that worker that then is able to go to work. So, you know, the idea that, you know, a healthcare option is available for people is something that I think is logical and in part of that mixed system that would be ideal where it becomes problematic is that if it needs to be single payer or something along those lines that's where a lot of people become a little bit more dogmatic in how they approach it and they say okay well that's not you know that's not even a mix like that's not a mix between capitalism and socialism or a mixed a mixed approach to to uh, how we're governing ourselves but the the interesting part is that with you bring up a really important point the capitalist system doesn't provide an option for people to get that health care right and you know where you start to have other things that become endangered in, in that process where I, I and i can go through stories but uh one of them is that uh when my mother was a kid a scarlet fever that was going around and they had it and the healthcare worker came through to see if they were okay and they said no i'm i'm fine and that's because their parents made them say that because their father had to go to work hmm. now there's two things there they didn't have healthcare and number 2 is that they were for their father was putting somebody else at risk but if they had had something like a program like one, if they had access to a doctor, they would have been able to, you know, get the proper medical attention. But number two is that they would have also maybe had a way of having an income or something. This is where UBI or something like that would come in. And we've seen this recently with the pandemic where, you know, somebody can somehow get a check and not have to go to work, not spread that scarlet fever and other people are impacted by this. And I think that that's an example of like a common good and reasonable approach to how a program could work and help the common good where somebody would, but again, in a capitalist model, you lie and you, 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 you don't, you go to work and that's it yeah. because you have to mm-hmm. like, it's the difference between you eating and not eating. And I think that that's kind of where, the, the 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 capitalist model just breaks down. Okay, I think I think what I'm hearing, and and this is I'm imagining two buckets when it comes to socialist programs. Two buckets in my mind come. The first bucket is buckets that are going to enhance people's lives so they can work or they can better themselves. And in this first bucket, we're putting healthcare, we're putting in education. Uh, we're putting in public transportation. So that's the first bucket of like social, uh, you know, government run, publicly funded uh, tools for us to better ourselves. 
Now, the second bucket is the more controversial bucket, and this is the bucket of like long-term welfare. How, just how cushiony should it be for the person that doesn't want to work? Now, back to our Robert Owens example with the, with the, girl, with the girl that doesn't want to milk the cow or something, I think both of you, both me and you are in agreement about like, we're not going to starve her out. But my question to you is, Joe, do we make her like in, in the real world now, not in Robert Owens's world, do we make her homeless? Do we um, like deny, like, do we give her free clothing? How much free food do we give her? Like, what's her allotment of free food that we give her? How, you know, like, this is where it gets very, very, very difficult. It's like, okay, we're not going to starve you. We're not going to completely wreck you. But what, what material comforts is it acceptable to take away from that person, Joe? Yeah, no. And I think that that's the problem is that the capitalists will argue that there is no good way to make that decision other than the market. And that's where capitalism fails. And I don't know the answer to that because I've never really been able to come up with an idea that would be the right balance. I mean, I can say those things you have like education and healthcare, and those are the things that I believe. But you're right. What point is there this cutoff of, all right, these are your basic needs. Because part of the argument is that the individuals that know their basic needs, the individuals that are best in position to make a decision about their basic needs are the individuals themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when you have someone else making that decision, then you're saying, well, you're taking away my rights, my freedoms, and things along those lines. And what happens is inevitably these these cycles, these economic cycles are, you know, you know, they, they, these boom and busts in any of these systems mm -hmm, mm -hmm. tend to have people then wonder why, you know, why are, you know, why is it failing? Why is this system failing? And then you'll have somebody come in and say, well, you know, you, it's failing because of X, Y, and Z. And meaning it, it's failing because you have health care that's provided by the government. And that may not be the case, mm -hmm. but it gets exploited and distorted. And that's where we are in our current political environment is that the minute you propose a government program that actually makes a lot of sense is the minute you're called and labeled a socialist. And that's a problem. But I, going but going back to like my two bucket analogy here, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think that when 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 the when the uh, the Democrats say you know we, we should have universal health care or we need to end you know we need to have like food stamps for the people who need it, they are they are doing the right thing. They they are actually depositing into first bucket socialism, like things that are like a person who has no food in their stomach cannot work and cannot read a book and cannot better themselves, right? right a person right, right. who who has no education, you know, cannot better themselves, especially now that we're in the knowledge based, you know, the information, the, the knowledge based economy, right? If we think about this though, in in, in terms of like. Where, like how soft is the cushion? And this is where we, we, we get to this is like, is, is, is like, for example, a homeless shelter enough? Is that, does that meet your basic needs or should everyone be uh, granted a studio apartment? Like wh where, where exactly 
is that line. And this is this is this is where we really we really grapple with ourselves. Like, does does everyone deserve a studio apartment, or is providing someone a homeless shelter does that meet their their minimum needs? And these are tough questions to ask. And you know, if everyone was provided a studio apartment with a television and Wi-Fi, would there be a lot of people that are like? Eh, I got my cave to live in. No need for me to go out there in the big, bad old world. Or do you think that we could still provide enough incentives that people would want to leave their studio apartments and, and you know, um, have a house and have these other things? It's, it's hard. You know, I really don't know that balance. You know, it, it's, it's a hard, you know, I, 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 it's a very difficult question to answer because I think that it has proven out where people have been, where governments have attend, you know, intent, you know, intended to provide the basic needs for individuals, but in that process, they seem to have been unable to strike the balance with incentives. Mm-hmm. Yes. And for the most part, now there are, you know, Northern European countries that have gotten pretty good, and I also think that there's also a scalability issue too, right? How's this going to work? You know, in a country like, say, the United States, versus how it would work in Chile. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm just you know, which is you know, a few million people. That's like a state. So, I mean, you know, it, it's a very, it's also a problem of scale. Mm-hmm. Any of these issues are a problem of scale as well. I do think that these are much more achievable on a statewide level versus a you know a federal level for the United States anyway. Well, let's 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 think this through a little bit, and let's just say that we went with studio apartment for everyone policy. Okay, let's just say that we did that, and we're we're talking, let's say, three hundred square feet, and it's three hundred square feet, and it could be in the middle of nowhere. You don't get to live in in Manhattan or whatever. You you're gonna live in somewhere in the middle of nowhere, but you're gonna deal with that. Do you think that if everyone had like a three hundred square foot studio in the middle of nowhere, they got like a basic shower? basic bed, a TV, a computer, a, uh, you know, um, they got, they got enough food coming in, like enough money to have, th- you know, three square meals a day or whatever it is. And, you know, obviously people have families and kids and that overcomplicates things, but let's just take a look. Let's just pretend everyone in this world was like single adults. Do you think that some people would stick their heads and be like, I want more than this 300 square feet. I want to become a doctor. I want to work hard. Or, or do you think that that kind of incentive would just kill your ambition? I'm of the opinion that people would still be ambitious. I think that if we gave everyone a studio apartment, even though we could never afford that, like, right. I still think there's going to be people that look at that 300 square feet and be like, no, this isn't enough for me. I, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to contribute to society. I'm bored. I, I'm restless. I, I, want, I, want, I want more than this. So... I'm wondering if like raising the floor would really kill incentive all that much. No, I mean, I don't believe it does. I really don't. I, and I think that it's a matter of values as well. And what is valuable? What is a society valuing? So against in certain cases, like if you're valuing education, you know, that in some of these uh, and some of the Nordic countries, where teachers are paid much higher than other professions. Therefore, people are striving to become a teacher. Yes. So the incentive is still there, and the tax is still there, and the idea of private property is still there. 
So you have all the things that you need. So there's a, there's evidence to suggest what you're saying will hold true. If you incentivize a profession or if you incentivize provide proper incentives to to you know solve a problem, I, I think that yes, people will um, still work hard. I think that again, the hard part becomes, you know, when is it enough? Like, so for example, everybody gets a computer, everybody gets internet, everybody gets 300 square feet. Yeah. It's yeah. Like the, a new, gets, it's Azeroth's Homestead Act or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm in. I mean, absolutely. I'll take it. And, and, and it's, it's optimal. You know, you have this optimal, you know, and so I'm in, a, I'm in the, the Azerod complex. And <laughs> Azerod units. I love exactly. This. Exactly. So, you know, so, you know, remember ego gets all of us at some point. Now I'm just right. joking, right. but it's, it, it's, I mean, this podcast is to take over the world, my friend. You didn't I, realize I, that. <laughs> I mean, you said we're going to solve all the problems today, right? So, <laughs> I didn't, I just didn't think you were going to put your name on it. There we but, go. Okay. But, but it was, um, no, it, you're right. No, I do think that there's this, um, you have all these things, but what happens when this computer doesn't work mm -hmm. as well as the not, another individual's computer does? Do they have this distinct advantage? Like, okay, you're the person, that <laughs> you know, then the problem is, is that when you're targeting quality mm -hmm. in this, you have to take something from someone else. And that's like, how much do you take? Yes, yes. And so that's the other end of this equation. Like, what, what's enough to keep you incentivized where I, you know, where you're going to keep working? How much can I take from you? Yes. And I think that that's, that, unfortunately, doesn't seem to, there's no clear answer to that. Because I, I think the minute you're in this this uh, 300 square foot apartment with all your needs being met, there's something else being, there's something else putting you at a disadvantage to the other individuals, right? Yes, yes. So then how much more do you need out of that, right? How do you, and, and I think that that's the real question is, well, now I have this computer, but you know, they have apples over there and I have, I don't even know what this is called, actually Acer or something like that. <laughs> It really is. Like, so no, like, I, I use an iPhone SE number, not the new one, the old one from 2014 or whatever. So like, believe me, I, I <laughs> when it comes to it. Yeah, exactly. So, but it's actually sufficient, right? I mean, that's a great example. It's a sufficient, um, it f fills your needs sufficiently. Yes. So, but let's say it didn't. Well, the, okay. So that I, I love now we're actually onto some gold here because what I think we need to do, I think what the government could, the way government policy analysts could look at this is like, let's raise the floor at the level of sufficiency. And sufficiency actually changes with time, right? So sufficient, so maybe 10 years, like I remember when Obama was around, he gave out, um, if you were ever in LA, they, they actually gave the homeless free flip phones. They actually, they actually right, gave, still do, yeah. Yeah, they still, they still might do that. And I think Smart that phones, that, yeah. Well, it was flip phones back when I was there. Now I would argue that maybe two gigs of data and a smartphone is now the new sufficient. But 
what I would say is that it shouldn't be, you know, iPhone 11 or 12 or whatever it is that they're using. It should be like a phone that I have, an old iPhone SE. You can check your email. You can watch a YouTube clip. You can uh, do the basics with it. And that should be maintained, like keep, every, keep people at the basic sufficient level. But I think like where, like, I think the biggest mistake the Soviet Union made is when you had like doctors and janitors earning the same salary or there was no incentive to become a doctor. That, oh, yeah, that, yeah, I mean. th- uh, that's a huge mistake to make where your doctors and your janitors and everyone else is living in the same 300 square foot apartment because it's like, what the hell am I going to medical school for if I'm, if I'm living just the same as everyone else? So I think the idea is, is that you can raise the floor, but the doctor is always going to have the, the nicer version of whatever it is. Well, they had trade schools over there where you were, you know, seen as somebody like this is what you wanted to get into. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this is where we're going to send our. But then even then you're deciding who's going to those schools. Right. 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 It's it's still then that's where the where does the proper balance become, you know, of state power? Or, you know, you're making the decision who gets to make, you know, who makes the decision on where if you go to this St. Petersburg. Uh, you know, or or if you were going to go to this other trade school, which in certain cases they could be excellent. Yes. Uh, in the previous Soviet Union. And um, that's actually that, that's an issue. You know, I, I, I talked to, you know, my, my girlfriend who's from China. They actually have that, you know, that exact issue where like the limit, the, the number of good, quote unquote, schools is very limited. So I sure. think I think the answer to that question is equal opportunities, but not equal outcomes. I think that's the best thing that we can go with. So in, 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 my, in this model that I'm envisioning here, as a baseline, you have your 300 square foot apartment, but you always have access to premium education at any given point. You, you have access to premier institutions. You have access to incredible libraries. You have, you have access to getting yourself a high, a high degree that, that will enable you to have a high paying job. It's just that you're going to have to study in that 300 square unit where someone else might be studying in a mansion. But theoretically to study, you know, in order to be successful, in order to study something like medicine, all you really need is a desk and, and a computer. That's all you really, you don't need more than that. You don't need a mansion to study to be a doctor. Let's just be real right now. Right, 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 I know. I mean, and, and this is where and there's a there's a hundred different directions that this could go. But let's just take a step back. How are we getting from, let's just say, the flip phone that you were talking about to the smartphone, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that's what, you know, a lot of the the, the hardcore capitalists will argue. They're like, you're going to get to this smartphone this much faster if you incentivize it and provide me with, you know, all the, you know, all the things that I need in order to make that happen. And so... The mar- and the market will get you there faster. That's their argument. That this this look, if we're all competing to build this smartphone, then that's the best way to do. It. But here's the thing: is that you know, no, I think I, I think that the private industry should still make the smartphone. I don't think that the government should actually make the smartphones. Right. But I think the government should buy the smartphones in large bulk and get a special government discount or whatever. Sure. And then and this and then. Not, not the government doesn't distribute the latest phone to the masses. The government buys a bunch of these phones that are already six, seven, eight years old, and then distributes it to the masses or the right. people who can't afford the phones on their own. 
I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. But the problem is, is that you're you're taxing right at a certain point. Yeah. So the rate of innovation goes down. And so you see what I'm saying in the sense that if I'm taxing you at a very high rate and the private sector is unable to reinvest that mm-hmm. money, right? Then I, what I, happens? I, I hear I hear yeah. you on that. I I would say this like if I am a billionaire, you know, an, a, a billionaire, right? And I, I and I'm worth thirty or forty billion, and I get a tax at a higher rate, and now I'm worth four billion or five billion or something substantially right. lower. I still have a B in front of my net worth. Like there's still a B there, and it's like, okay, yes, I'm getting taxed a lot harder, but that doesn't mean like we have this perverse idea that if we tax billionaires more, that the billionaires are just going to become lazy. That that's not what's right, going to happen. Right, right. Like the billionaire is not going to be like, oh man, I, you know, the taxes are too high. I'm just going to sit here and chill. No, 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 no. Like, let me give you a hypothetical on this, Joe, right? If every billionaire right now, just, just imagine this in your head, Joe, let's say every billionaire instantly had a net worth of $1 billion. So whether you had $50 billion or you had $10 billion, every billionaire all of a sudden just was reduced to $1 billion. I guarantee you all of them would fight their asses off to get to $2 billion as quickly as possible. Because what they want is they don't want to have uh, they don't care how much money they're worth. They just want to be top dog. That's all they care about. They don't care about how, how much billions of dollars they have. They just want to have the most amount of money compared to somebody else. That's all. It's all. It's, it, it's always been this way. It's always been a relative game. No, I mean I don't disagree. But you, this is the this is where you know our current system is failing. Yes. So I mean, is that it's not only taxing billionaires, but it's also taxing fairly. Mm-hmm. You know, where people are using, you know, loopholes in order to not pay their fair share. Yes. And when that inevitably comes back on the billionaires in a socialist model, usually, you know, because they're, you know, you have this vast discrepancy in wealth. And when it's just, when it becomes too much, then everybody says, well, wait a minute, we're going to go. But the problem is, there are only so many billionaires, right? And there are only so many, even people making a few hundred thousand dollars a year or things along those lines. So it's that scale that you're looking at. Right, right. That, and, and this is where um, the idea of income distribution really comes in, right? How is income best distributed? And, I, and I, that's why I've been a proponent of something, you know, of a, just a higher tax society with less loopholes. Yes. Uh, you know, that really provides for everyone else. That being said, you know, it's, 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 you know, that, that scale, you know, it's not a question of I have a billion, I need to. Yes, you're right. I, I agree with that. But it's a question of when you keep coming back and there are no billionaires, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's the point is that, you know, when you're trying to de- determine you're shooting only for equality. Yes, I, I mean, but this, the the thing about this though is, let's just say there there have been people on the radical left who said let's just get rid of all billionaires altogether, okay? And let's just pretend for a second that that did happen. We got rid of all billionaires, right? My argument would be then then 
I guess, I guess that's a tough one because what happens when you have 999, you know, hundred million dollars, right? Then there is an argument to be made that like maybe the guy with 999, hundred million dollars just rests, right? Because now they can't work anymore. Because now they, now they've reached a glass ceiling and you're right. That could kill in innovation. So what I'm thinking about um, now that I'm thinking this through Joe is maybe it can't be a finite number. We can't say that no. you can never be a billionaire because if it's a finite number, then once you reach that number, you're going to rest and then innovation is going to die. But what if it's just an incredibly high percentage at all times? So if it's just, let's, let's just say it's 80%, okay, you can still earn as much money as you want. It's just that, you know, it's at a high percentage. I think that if you tax at a percent and not creating a glass ceiling, you'll still have the innovation because it's not saying you can't earn anymore. I agree. And, and I think that that's really where, you know, that ought to be the target. The problem is, is that, again, I, I think that there are, are the tax hole, the tax code has so many loopholes and so many ways of like, even what is income? within this construct you know what's an asset i've heard capital very good and, you know, capital gain or i've heard very good arguments as to no income tax at all i mean this is the 16th amendment that <laughs> you know was a result of populism and you know who are you taxing when you tax income right i mean you know you're taxing everybody and, and as opposed to taxing people with assets Yes, yes. And so I think that this is where we have the idea of an equitable, equitable uh, tax code is a first step in having a functioning form of capitalism. Mm. You know, that this is where you strike the balance of having social programs that are funded. But you also have this, you can still have a capitalist model, you know, and I think that that's where the balance exists. It exists in the in the whole idea of justice, to be quite honest. I, I think I think that's that that's actually an um, a topic for another episode where we could it definitely is, yeah. talk, we could go in length about how exactly it is that we finance a, a more socialist leaning form of capitalism. I think I think because I I think the devil is in the details and we're being super in the clouds right now and and I, I hear that so I, I think we could definitely table that for another discussion and talk sure. about the finer points and the finer details. Joe, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. And thanks for having me, Aaron. This concludes the 76th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.